Welcome to Zoom Through the Bible. We are back, people. Um, and we are going to get started in the book of 1 Corinthians tonight. I feel like I've been saying we were going to start 1 Corinthians for what feels like a month now. And um, we're actually going to do it tonight. We're going to come through with a promise. So uh, welcome in. Uh, if you have your Bibles or devices or anything, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that is going to be home base for us tonight. And I have one scripture outside of 1 Corinthians 1. If you want to jot it down, Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 24 and 25. Do I have a volunteer that wants to read that for us here in a few minutes? No, you want to take that? Appreciate it. Um, so let's pray and we will get started this evening. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for getting us here. Thank you for allowing us some time to come together and to study your word. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to have your written word that we can dig into verse by verse and really get a good understanding of what you're trying to tell your people, help, it to, help us to apply it to our lives so that we can be changed by your word. Father, your, your, your word tells us that it goes out and it accomplishes what it's meant to. It does not return void. So Father, we uh, are putting our faith in that tonight as we study your word and as we look in a new area for us as a study. Uh, teach us from your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first nine verses here to start. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and I already got a Sosthenes, Sosthenes, our brother, to the church which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge. Six, excuse me, six. <laughs> Even, <laughs> I read the number six. Wow. Um, <laughs> let's back up. Let's start in verse five. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the re revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can I um, be completely transparent with you guys for like two seconds? It's a kind of a shorter study tonight. So give me, give me two seconds to be transparent with you. I typically take the verse numbers out when I would, when I do stuff like this. Um, but I had gone through and looked at some old uh, Freedom Church stuff. And I realized that in a lot of the visuals where we show scriptures, we put the numbers in there. And I was like, well, maybe that's helpful for the reader. What could possibly go wrong by leaving the numbers in there? And then here, smart guy, uh, read the number six. 
I said, in him, all, <laughs> all utterance and all knowledge, six, even as the testimony of Christ. Um, that, that's uh, <sighs> okay. Uh, we're going to try to focus in here. Um, so real quick, as we start a, a, a brand new book, the, the thing to call out right away is always to sort of give some background into the book and orient us to where we're at in the history of the word of God and how uh, that points back to us. And so it's always really important to kind of go over some of the essentials, so to speak, um, with when you start off a, a new book. Now, what we know about the book of First Corinthians, this is a church started by the Apostle Paul, and the story we find in Acts chapter 18, I had you kind of note that scripture. Uh, if you really want to read about when Paul was in Corinth, um, you can read about that in Acts 18 and the before and the after. But just kind of a quick overview of what you would find there is that you would find that Paul came here to Corinth from Athens and stayed for a year and a half and established the church there in Corinth. So this is the Greek city Corinth um, and came after what a lot of people would call maybe Paul's biggest failure. I don't necessarily know if we can really uh, speak in absolutes in terms of failure or success, but there are many that would argue that Athens was maybe sort of Paul, Paul went to a lot of cities, which I'm going to show you a quick map here in just a second. And, um, many would have the argument that Athens was maybe his le least successful trip in terms of, uh, starting a church and sort of starting something in the name of God. And so this is happening immediately after that, when he goes to the church at Corinth, uh, from the church at Corinth, after he stays there in a year and a half, establishes the church, he moves on to the city of Ephesus, which is where we get the uh, book of Ephesians. And while he is in the city of Ephesus, he writes back to the church at Corinth, the letter that we are about to read. Three different times while he's in the in the city of Ephesus, Paul gets information from three different sources about some concerns that are happening with that church in Corinth. And so the book of first and second Corinthians are letters written back to the church addressing these issues that have been told to him. When Paul started his ministry in the city of Corinth, he seemingly immediately was able to take the synagogue leader, the leader of the synagogue there, and uh, uh, convert him, um, lead him to come to know Jesus Christ. That person who replaces the leader of the synagogue is this man, Sosthenes, who's mentioned here in verse one uh, as our brother. Um, so this is like the second um, leader of the synagogue, Jewish leader, who Paul, again, um, converts eventually. But one of the things that we know about Sosthenes is that uh, Sosthenes, again, leader of the Jewish community, is somebody who is beaten uh, by the Greeks because they would not, he would not cease Paul or stop his ministry in Corinth. So there was objection to Paul having this ministry and teaching the word of God and teaching Jesus Christ and him crucified in the city of Corinth. And uh, even the Jewish uh, leaders who ultimately would be converted by Paul to come to a, know Jesus Christ as their personal savior uh, had to pay the price if they didn't stop or get in the way of uh, Paul and what he was doing in the city. Uh, I mentioned I have a map for you. So just again, to help sort of orient us to what 
uh, and where Paul is at this time. We see the city of Corinth um, right here in the middle. And because of, and you can see where Athens was, and then you can also see where he's at in Ephesus here uh, across the Aegean Sea, where he's getting this information, send it back. We also see some, you know, uh, familiar names like Philippi and Thessalonica and some of the other epistles that we know that Paul wrote and other churches that he started here. Um, thank you, Pastor Ralph Wilson, copyright 2018, for providing the map for us. Um, and so uh, that Paul is here writing back to here. A uh, little bit of background on the city of Corinth. Corinth is a thriving city. And if you just take a look at it on the map, you can really tell why, right? If you're coming from Northern Greece into Southern Greece, you have to, and you're, you're traveling by land, you have to come through Corinth, right? So that makes it a very much a city that is thriving and has lots of stuff happening, lots of people happening, lots of commerce happening, lots of money, so on and so forth. Additionally, if you were sailing, say from Ephesus, and you were trying to get to the uh, west side of Greece and up into potentially Rome, you may want to cross here at Corinth. The, the, the uh, smallest landmass. Uh, in terms of the length from this side of the of the country to this Gulf of Corinth here, um, to be able to ultimately sail on to Rome uh, is four miles only. And so actually what was happening here in the city is that many boats would uh, find landfall and be drug across using a system of pulleys and, and ropes uh, to be able to drag that thing the four miles across so that they didn't have to come through this peninsula and sail all the way around. This was these are very dangerous waters down here, especially for this time. Uh, and so there was this was a very dangerous route to go. So many people would just come this way through Corinth uh, in order to get to Rome. So this is a bubbling, thriving city. A couple of quotes that I found about the city of Corinth was that Corinth had a rich ethnic mix. It was a center of sports, government, military, and business. Uh, the term, um, well, let me back up here for a second. Another quote that I found of it says, all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Uh, Leon Morris describes Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. There was a saying that was known in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was uh, a phrase called Corinthiazomai, uh, which literally meant to live like a Corinthian or sort of maybe a, uh, hi Hannah, um, maybe a, a more modern translation of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas type of thing uh, is what's happening in um, the city of Corinth in the time of Paul. So what you find here is that right in the middle of this enormous city with huge impact to the ancient world, you have Paul starting a church and you have the starting point, one of the major starting point hubs of the early Christian church. And you have a city that has Lots and lots of potential, the, the money, the people, the opportunity in terms of, you know, if you're somebody who's coming from Asia Minor and you're trying to get to Rome, you're essentially coming through Corinth. So the amount of people that that church was potentially able to come across to be able to spread the gospel was enormous. If you were coming from northern Greece down to southern Greece, 
you, you had to come through Corinth. So again, the amount of people that the church in Corinth was able to uh, get in contact with, again, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ was uh, so much at this time. So this was a city and a church that had great potential, but was also stuck in the middle of a very morally corrupt area that would make it very difficult. And, and you can kind of feel this yin and yang thing that's happening here with the church in Corinth. And that's what Paul's talking about here in, in what we just read in terms of the different gifts and the abilities that have come. Um, but also a lot of temptation and the flesh. And it really brings up the question of who is influencing who, right? Is the church influencing the city of Corinth and all of the people that it comes across? Or is the city having its influence on the church? And a lot of what Paul is writing back to is to remind the church there that the church should be influencing the city and not the other way around. It's a question that we can ask ourselves as the church in America, um, big church, you know, big C church in America, not speaking specifically about freedom church, but you know, the Christian church in America, we can ask ourselves the same question, who is influencing who and whether it's a mega church that has, you know, more concerts and self-help guided sessions that don't involve a Bible at all, or moral corruption in the church, or the elevation of celebrity pastors, or being wrapped up in a nationalist movement. I think it's pretty clear what the answer is to the church in America on who is influencing who. But like this, uh, books like this are important for us to remember that it's supposed to be the other way around. We have a great um, mission that was given to us by God um, to influence those around us and not allow it to be the other way around. Okay, uh, let's go on. Uh, and that here's our little uh, notes sheet if you want to kind of jot those down. And just the first point I had in there is, again, who is influencing who. All right, the next part here, uh, verses 10 through 17, which I have labeled here, don't be torn apart. If you're taking notes, God bless you. Uh, don't worry, I will be, we will be back with this page. So it will, don't worry about that if you miss something. Uh, but don't be turn, torn apart. Verse 10, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by the house of Chloe's, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross should be made of no effect. That's a good highlighted verse. Uh, there, the end of verse 17, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. We'll, we'll circle back to that in the next section as well. So make sure you hold on to that for just a moment. But essentially what Paul is talking about here is that um, he 
is being told, this is the first, I mentioned there are three different times in the book where we get told who is essentially telling Paul or giving reports that there's some craziness going on in the church. And the first one that we find out is this woman, Chloe, who we have to imagine is probably a wealthy member of the church who has the means to be able to sail across from Greece to Ephesus, or at least send a party of representatives that would be able to give a message to Paul of what is happening back at the church in Corinth. And the message that Chloe specifically is giving is that the church has decided to have factions. The church has decided that they're going to choose the leader that they are most comfortable with and that you're finding groups uh, that are uh, forming within the church based on the leader that they have chosen um, to have. And the first uh, just little bullet point um, that I have here is that this word division, again, I'll read it for you here. Uh, it says, um, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. This word division is not necessarily to set up different uh, areas or have dividing lines. It's literally in the original Greek, the word uh, to tear apart. And that is the idea of ripping apart the body of Christ. And so Paul is literally saying, I'm pleading with you guys, don't, excuse me, rip us apart. Uh, William Barclay, a famous old school um, Bible historian, I had a quote about this. It says, a medical word used for knitting, uh, well, um, excuse me, let me back up. Uh, instead of being teared apart, he asks us to be joined together. And, and on that phrase, joined together, he has a quote that says, a medical word used for knitting together bones that have been fractured or joining together a joint that has been dislocated. The disunion is unnatural and must be cured. This is the idea that we are one body in Christ and that we should not be torn apart, but instead we should be joined together again, an unnatural disunion that must be cured. And essentially, again, what these people in the church in Corinth are doing are elevating the leader of their choice to be the representative of who they are in terms of their faith, essentially, in Jesus Christ. And that leads me to my next point here, which is elevating a man to the leader of your faith is always a bad decision. What you have happening here are three different men that are mentioned in scripture. You have Paul, of course, who's the founder of the church. You have a man named Apollos, who was really, my guess is that Apollos was good looking. I'm just going to guess just based off of the way that the, the Bible sort of this. He was just a pretty dude, probably looked really good, was one of those like pretty faces, easy to follow. Um, that brings us to actually, this is where I wanted us to read Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 25 sort of describe Apollos. Noah, do you mind unmuting and reading that for us real quick? Yes. Uh, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus 
although he knew only John's baptism. So a couple things that we learned from what Noah just read, again, just in the way that he's described, I'm guessing Apollos was pretty and easy to follow. You know, they just, you know, good looking people. It's our curse that people are easy to follow us, us good looking people. Right. Um, But also we find out that he had some spiritual gifts that he was good at teaching the word of God and that um, he also is coming out and probably most importantly, forget the joke about being good looking um, on his part, not mine uh, of the most important thing that Noah just read was that he was a disciple essentially of John the Baptist. So the people were choosing him. So it was like, who do I choose? Which big leader do I choose? Do I choose Paul or do I choose somebody who's come from John the Baptist or Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. So you have these three big Titans of the early church, so to speak. And the people were deciding which one did they want to represent them. The other, the other group that's mentioned in verse 12 is also, uh, I am of Christ, which is the correct group to decide, uh, that you're going, uh, to be in. Um, and the, the thing to, to sort of note about this particular issue that's happening. Again, I have written here, elevating a man to a leader of your faith is always, always, always a bad decision. And the next thing that I have here to note is that it's not about the man, it's about the sin. Uh, One thing that I'll note here is that changing different styles of churches to be able to reach different types of people is not what Paul is talking about. Like the idea that the Christian church has an all Hispanic church that only preaches in, in, in Spanish because the people only speak Spanish. Of course, that's a division from say Freedom Church because we speak in English all of our services, but that's not the division that Paul is talking about here. This is not something that Paul is worried about for us. The idea of we had to sort of put things in a certain place so that people would have the opportunity to hear the word of God. That's not what we're talking about. He's not even necessarily talking about the differences in, you know, the, the different, um, why can't I think of the word? Somebody's got to unmute and help me here. Denominations. Never mind. I got there. Denominations. He's not even necessarily talking about denominations. Although if you do a back search on the history of denominations in this country, you might find some um, insidious things here and there. Um, but he's not necessarily talking about that. Cause again, at the heart of most of the denominations is an opportunity to make people feel comfortable and be able to hear the word of God. What he is more speaking of is that these people, um, well, let me, let me back up in later chapters. And we'll read as we get to them in the book of first Corinthians, Paul makes it pretty clear that it's not about the men at all. It's about people wanting to feel secure in their own decisions and mostly their sinful way of thinking and uh, about those things. So they make these divisions to to support the decision. They have to be stuck in a, in a, in a, easy for me to say. They make these divisions to support the decision that they've made and to be stuck in their flawed way of thinking. They make some sort of um, 
assumption about one of these men and say, well, if you're somebody who believes in Paul, then you believe this and you don't believe this. So that means you must be some, a believer in Peter. And that is not what God would want. And that is not what Jesus would want. Um, and even the Jesus, again, Jesus group that's mentioned here in the way that Paul writes it, it's not an implicit uh, here written, but it's still, you can sort of infer that even, you know, Chloe herself, we can imagine is a member of the Jesus group um, and is sending this information over to Paul. Um, but there's still even an inference here that, that even Paul is coming down on the Jesus group for not doing enough to unify the rest of the church in Christ. And so uh, Paul is really calling out the idea that um, this shouldn't be happening. In our world today, we see these divisions a lot. We see divisions in the church based off of race and ethnicity, income level, and we often mask it as inclusiveness. These veiled, often racist statements that say, oh, well, wouldn't you feel more comfortable with people like this? Or I think you might feel more comfortable at this end, or maybe you should be talking to this group. You shouldn't maybe be in this small group. And we see these things happen in the church in America all the time, but it's really about our sinful outlook that's dressed up as inclusiveness um, than what something that's actually good in terms of helping people understand the gospel at their level. And so we have to be very careful about any division that we do in the church of God. And the last little point that I have here, this is more of a personal thing, and I'm sorry to, I, I know I do it a lot, but my personal is just sort of two cents. But I have to be honest, I feel like Chloe sometimes. Chloe is sitting back. She knows the way that the church is supposed to look, but she's seen so many examples of the church and Christians that have decided to elevate men or other things of the world instead of Jesus himself. And here we have Chloe. She doesn't know what to do with this. And so she's reaching out to Paul for help. I have to admit, sometimes I feel like Chloe myself. That as I, again, look at big church, capital C church, I see a church that does not resemble what Jesus Christ called us to be. I see a lot of many of the examples that we've already talked about happening at a grand scale, making the church this, this easy thing to pick apart because of the hypocrisy that comes out of it. And I find myself feeling like Chloe, like what is happening here? This is my church. This is who this is. These are the people of God because that's what God's called me to. And I don't find um, that it's matching what we should be doing. And uh, sometimes I ask myself the question, who do I reach out to? Like Chloe had Paul to reach out to, to try to kind of fix this whole thing. Who do I have to reach out to? And the answer of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And I find myself even more resolute. I find myself making sure that we keep this Bible study going so that we can, we can get out and, and freedom church can get out and teach the true word of God and the way that God has, has loves his people and show that love above all else. And I find myself even more resolute to what God has called us to here in this area and to be able to leverage everything that we possibly can to get that word out to the rest of the world. All right, let's move on to the next section here, which I have uh, titled the power of the gospel verses 18 through 25, which, you know, if you remember three, four weeks ago, we, we previewed verse 18, but let's, let's kind of take a look at it again. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power 
of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding, the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews requested a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, I mentioned uh, a few sections ago, verse 17. Um, I'll just read verse 17 again, just to kind of make sure we're all oriented. It says, for Christ did not send me, Paul talking about himself, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with, and again, I, I told you to mark this, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's circling back here to say that the message of the cross is so, so important. For us, it's literally the power of God, the message of the cross. It is the message of the cross equals um, the, um, the, the gospel, essentially. The message of the cross is telling people the gospel, and it's through the gospel being preached. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, hearing this message of the, of the cross, the, the gospel itself, um, that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell with people. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead comes to indwell with us. There is literal power in the message of the cross. But uh, the first point I have here is that as much as it's foolishness to some, it is power for others. You know, for some, this is simply uh, a, a means of execution. This is the electric chair, so to speak. So, and, and for some, the message of the cross is just nothing. It's just words on a page. There's literally nothing about it. But if you could think about, again, the dichotomy of this um, from, from as low as it, in regard as it could be held to somebody who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ as simply just written words on a page. It's absolutely the other end of the spectrum for those who have come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. That's how much different the message of the cross is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the way on the other side is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the one thing about this uh, particular section of scripture um, that I think is really, really, really important um, is there are two phrases uh, that are used. Um, and that is that for those who are being saved, which it, uh, which it says in verse 18, for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And for those who it's not, it says for those who are perishing, these are verbs that tell us that this is a continual process, right? That there is, for those who are perishing, there is opportunity to not perish anymore and to stop that trend and to come to know Jesus Christ and to have the power. And those who are being saved, this speaks to a continual process, like we talked about this past Sunday, of, of waking up every day and deciding to do the things that God has called you to and to really take serious the calling that God has put on your life. This is a continual process. But what we find here um, is Paul in the rest of this section talking about 
sort of earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom, which we had a similar conversation when we studied the book of James. Um, but this is coming from the, from the idea. And, and again, I went back to verse 17, where he says the wisdom of words makes the message of the cross, this gospel that we've just been talking about, of less effect. And that's the idea. And Paul is really laying out here the idea that like we don't have to judge it up, you know, judge it up. You know what I mean? We The message of the cross can be uh, as simple as what it is written. Jesus Christ was perfect. He died, took on our sins so that we may have life through him and may be able to one day uh, be reunited with the father in heaven through him. There doesn't, I don't need to come up with like, you know, sometimes we get too mixed up in the idea of coming up with like these cool metaphors and um, cool ways of thinking about the gospel. And Paul's really denouncing that here. He calls that the wisdom of words. And that's not what uh, is, is really important here. And, and more specifically, he mentioned here, and here's the next uh, little bullet point that I have, uh, that there's only one book that you're going to find this wisdom. You know, um, Paul is calling out that you can search the whole world for wisdom of who God is, but there's only really one place you're going to find the message of the cross, and that is in our Bible today. Paul is also calling out those who seek more wisdom, um, and again, like I was just mentioning, try to really fluff up the message of the cross. Can I tell you that verse 21 uh, makes me take a really deep breath? I gotta, you know, this is just you know, pastors admit type of thing. Um, I, I always worry that I get up in front of people and preach the word of God. And I just sound sort of like a bumbling idiot that nothing's, I have this idea of what I want people to know. And I hope that the words actually come out of my mouth and actually make uh, the impression. But verse 21 makes me breathe a sigh of relief. Although Paul is using it to sort of denounce wisdom of the words. I take it as sigh of relief. I'll just read it for you. It says, for since, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through, through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Essentially, what, what Paul's saying there is that, look, the wisdom of the world is not going to get you, God. Um, so because of that, it pleases God that even in the dumb stuff that we say, people are even still able to become to know Jesus Christ, even if you mess up the message. And so that is a great uh, thing for me to know. Um, that the, I can't mess up the message so bad that the Holy Spirit doesn't have the ability to come in and save, save people and, and teach people even despite my bumbling at times. And really, Paul is, is coming in here and again, sort of coming against those who think they're just too intellectual to know Jesus. And, you know, as we get into a uh, a, a world. And, and again, Paul is talking to this world. Can you imagine Paul talking to a world in which we have the entirety of the database of the internet at our fingertips at all times, where we can essentially look up any fact within a matter of seconds. And Paul is telling people even back then to not find all of their salvation, so to speak, in the wisdom of the world, that that's, you're, you're just going to come up empty and um, now even more so, right, with, with people who can feel like they just know everything because they can do a Google search, right? Um, there's a story, there's a famous story of, of Albert Einstein, of, you know, when he was a professor in a class, and the classes were saying that they had decided that there was no God. Einstein asked them how much of all the knowledge in the world they had amongst themselves collectively as a class with no Google. The students discussed it for, for a while, and decided they had 5% of all human knowledge amongst themselves. 
Can we say that that number probably is a little bit bigger because we have access to Google, but it's such a surface knowledge. Can we even really say that we have knowledge? Who knows? I'll just finish the, finish the story here. 5% of all human knowledge is what his class said. Einstein thought that their estimate was a little generous, but he replied, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? And um, the, the last point that I'll sort of make about that is that, hey, look, I'm, I'm a learned man. Um, I use words like learned. Um, I have a master's degree myself. I've been in colleges, on campuses. I was always a good student. Um, I, I feel like I know a lot from the world, um, but I also know how much I don't know. Um, I know enough to know that there's a lot in this world that I don't know, but I'm willing to listen to other people. And when it comes to Jesus, I'm willing to fall back on the things about God that I do know. I do know that God loves me. I do know that God sent his son. I do know that God put together 66 books of the Bibles written by 40 plus authors over hundreds of years that has been around in circulation for thousands of years and have had the opportunity to, to, to come up with one, just one thing where this is said in the Bible and this didn't happen. 66 books, 40 authors, hundreds of years, thousands of time in between, all of Google at our, at our, at our fingertips. And I know that that doesn't exist. I know that there are people who try to say it exists, but it often is defunct because the word of God is truth. Talk about that a little bit more here in just a second. But um, I can fall back on some of the things that I do know. And um, that, that makes me feel secure in who God is and not have to fall into some of the worldly wisdom. I also know enough about worldly wisdom to know that some of it takes more faith than even having faith in Jesus Christ. We'll just put it like that uh, to believe some of it. So um, last section here, and we'll close up because I know we are over on time, well, almost over on time, uh, 26 through 31. For uh, And I have this listed as, um, what I have there, those are three pretty good things. Um, verse 26, for you, you see your calling, brethren, that you that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to set, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and, and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing, the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became who became for us the wisdom of God. And this is the three things I'm talking about. He's the wisdom of God. He's righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And as it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Again, Paul is sort of continuing um, this message of, of not putting your faith in the wisdom of the world, um, but to put your faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And... Um, Two quick things that I have about that is, um, let's see here. Oh, I think I messed this up. Um, yeah, I did mess this up. I copied and pasted the uh, same thing twice. That's supposed to read what's important in God's eyes. So ignore that. It's supposed to say what's important in God's eyes. Paul is telling us how God essentially takes the things that we really don't consider important and he uses them for important things. Uh, there are many different examples in the Bible. One that comes to mind really quickly is just sort of the idea of David over Saul as the first true king of the Hebrew people that's that's given. The people chose Saul because of the way that he looked, because of his physical attributes that they felt like he matched up with the uh, 
the Philistines and looked more like the kings that they had saw in the pagan nations that were around them. And David was this tiny shepherd. And so uh, God used him to be mighty and to kill the tens of thousands, as the Bible tells us, um, and, and to just be mighty over all of these things and to do amazing things. And we have many different stories in the Bible of God using regular people to do amazing things. And so that's essentially what Paul is talking about here, where Paul is not, it, where, where he's talking about how it's not the wisdom of the world, it's through Jesus Christ. And this is this doing these amazing things is not to elevate these people. It's to show that God's God's the one in control and he's the one who is in power. And then the last point that I have here is um, that the wisdom of God, as he mentions here, is poured out through Jesus. And it's mentioned here in the scripture that Jesus is that wisdom and he's that wisdom manifested in three words, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, that is, that he is the baseline for what is good. He is truth. And everything that comes from, every, you think about it, everything else comes from that. Justice comes from there having to be a baseline of what is the right thing. We live in a world where we're constantly trying to find what is the right thing. Well, Jesus was righteousness. And so that because he's the truth, he's sort of the baseline for everything else that we can kind of put our, our experiences on this earth. He's also the sanctification. He made a way for us to become righteous in God's eyes as well. But not only did he make the way, not only did he set it up, but he's also the redemption. He actually did it. He, he, he not only set up the sanctification, but he actually carried it out when he died on the cross for him. That is the wisdom, so to speak, to write home about. And that's it. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God of righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to the Father through you. We, we praise you. We thank you for that. Father, if there's anybody who's hearing the breath of my voice who does not know you in that way, Father, I ask that you speak their name today, Father, that you reach out to them, and Father, that they reach out to you and ask you to come into their life and to be the Lord of their life. It's just really that simple. And then, Father, to reach out to us and let us know so that we can celebrate with them and, and help to, to edify them and lift them up and give them next steps and all of those things. Father, we, we, we ask that today uh, for your people. We thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, next time. So next time, uh, before you log, <clears throat> log off, read, read chapter two. We might get through chapter two and three next week, but definitely get through chapter two yourself and have, um, I, I saw that face, Heidi. We're going to, we we're, now we're going to get through two chapters next week. Um, <laughs> and the question that you, uh, to be asking yourself while reading is, uh, and we'll, we'll follow this up. I know sometimes I put these questions here and we never bring them up, but if you had a genie, if you had a genie and and you what would be wish numero uno for that genie? Let's just pretend it's not Aladdin rules and you only get one wish uh, with a genie. Um, if if you had a wish, what uh, would that wish be? So be just be thinking about it. It's just something to be thought provoking while you read First Corinthians chapter two. And with that, we are done. Y'all have a great night. Thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, if you need something, I'll stick on here for a few moments. Otherwise, have a great night.